welcome. Uh, welcome to Lower Town, uh, St. Paul, and uh, Hope Community Church here. Glad you could make it. Um, I have a lot to cover tonight in your outline if you got it. It literally says uh, for the intro, there's no time for that. And I literally mean there's no time for that. That's the intro. Okay, you just had it. Uh, we're going to jump into where we're going because there's a lot of text. And we've been, and, and I struggled all week with how to approach this passage um, because, first off, it's three, three whole chapters. And so I'm not going to read all three chapters. Um, initially, I was going to. And once I realized I had, you know, 50 slides of just verses, I thought, you know, maybe, maybe we can cut some of that out and uh, get you guys out of here at a decent time, so, um, which is still the plan, so that's what we're going to do. So I'm just going to jump, jump right into this, uh, talk about where we've been. So we've been, again, Exodus, this is the 26th week of, of Exodus, and uh, context Israel's been set free from slavery, and they're now at the mountain, at Mount Sinai, at the base of it. And Moses has been going up and down, and God is speaking to him uh, from the top of the mountain. And, and all of Israel could hear him at one point, could hear God talking at one point. Uh, and then they were too afraid and said, stop, no, no more of that. Um, and so now, for the next 58 chapters, uh, God and Moses are going to write down laws for Israel. And so this is God talking to his people about who he is and who they should be and how they should handle themselves. And so last week, looking at the Ten, the ten Commandments and kind of summed up uh, a lot of the Ten Commandments, with, like Jesus, uh, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And that these are the two greatest commandments, that if I do these things, I'm fulfilling the law, I'm obeying the law, uh, but yet we fall short of that. And so that's kind of what we're going to look at today and, and how... Uh, the uh, Israelites are going to do the same thing, and the laws are going to be set before them. So in Exodus chapter 1 to 23, um, what I'm going to do, um, this, is gonna, this is the first verse here. It says, these are the laws you are to set before them. This is God talking to Moses as he's back up on the mountain getting the words from, from Yahweh. And um, so I'm going to do a couple things. I'm going to kind of just give raw data, okay? So just information about how do we study the Old Testament law? How do, we, how do we read through the Old Testament? Because if you've ever tried to do it, usually people get through Genesis and then most of Exodus and they get right here to chapter 21 and they go, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do with the rest of this. Uh, what does any of this stuff mean? And we're going to read a lot of these verses of not boiling a goat in its mother's milk. What? What, what does that have to do with me? Um, and, uh, and so I'm gonna, we're going to look at historically how people have approached the Old Testament law, and, um, and then looking at how we at Hope approach it as well, at Hope Community Church, and, and through the guidance of some brilliant minds, um, I'm not one of them, um, who have taught me uh, some things, and, and I've been able to benefit from that. So anyways, that's, that's that. I already spent way too much time on that. So three ways to view the Old Testament. What do we do with the Old Testament Law. And so we kind of looked at this last week, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but I do want to read a couple things. And there's, um, uh, I was talking with Pastor Steve throughout the week and how he was going to do this. So he introduced me to a, a little blog by a guy named J.D. Greer. And so I'm just going to read kind of what he has to say about these laws. Because uh, historically they've been broken down in three ways, okay? Uh, when you read a law, either it's, it's civil, meaning it has something to do with the government or the people and how they conduct themselves. So, for example, put, make sure you put railings on top of your house because if somebody falls off and dies, you're liable, right? That's a civil law. 
Um, that's not in the passage we're looking at right now. Um, I think that's in Leviticus. Uh, and then they have ceremonial laws, things like sacrifices and, and this is how you do this. And if you do something wrong, this is how you uh, have a blood sacrifice or atonement for your sins or whatever it may be. And then there's a moral law, right? Don't kill. Um, don't steal. These are things that, that, are, that would be a moral law that would be for every Israelite. And so just want to uh, take some time and look at that. Now, this is a quote from Peter Enns. Um, and I, I, I've, okay, man, I don't even know how to, I apologize. I've never had more slides in, in a sermon in my life. And there's um, a long time, I promise no stories, but I'm going to tell one real quick. Uh, Steve was telling me a long time ago, he, he asked his wife, you know, how, how was the sermon? And her response was, uh, there's a lot of words. And so I'm not going to ask my wife how tonight's sermon, because you're gonna, there's a lot, a lot of words, right? There's a, a lot of text, so I'm going to paraphrase some of them, I think. I'm going to try my best. But what we need to keep in mind with all of these laws, this whole text, uh, is that, that they are a theocracy. We talked about that last week, right? That, that in our culture, there is separation of church and state, that we have a civil government that whatever your position on these things, that's up to you, uh, that they can either, we can vote to enforce some of these laws or choose not to. So that's why, again, the Ten Commandments, the first four, the government doesn't enforce, but historically they've enforced the last six because that's a horizontal law, right? Okay. This is what I love here, what he says. Although many of these laws seem to pertain to the mundane social matters, we would be, we would be misrepresented if these laws, in these laws if we saw them as anything less than closely connected to Israel's redemption from Egypt. All right, this is, com- this is a completely unique situation, a theocracy. God ruled and gave them the laws. It's not the United States. So we can't, that lens, take it off. It's not that lens. All right, but... These laws meant something. So like the Ten Commandments, the Book of the Covenant uh, has been seen to its, in its redemptive context as a gift of God to his people already redeemed. We've said that. They've, been, they've already been bought out of slave, brought out of slavery and set free. And so now because they're free, this is how you ought to live. And we said the same thing about us. If I've already been saved, I don't obey the law to keep me saved. I obey the law because this is what it means to live with Christ and as Christ would. Okay, uh, whatever secular context these laws may have in our own modern uh, penchant for driving a wedge between the sacred and the secular, something foreign to Israel's worldview. Simply wasn't a thing. Um, okay, that's the context. Now, these are the three laws, the three aspects that I want to get to. Although many of these laws seem to pertain to, oh, I just <laughs> clicked the button. One of the most helpful ways to think about this is to look at the types of laws there are in the Old Testament. The 16th century reformer John Calvin saw the New Testament uh, seemed to treat the Old Testament laws in three ways. There were civil laws which governed the nation of Israel, encompassing not only their behaviors, but also the punishment for crimes. There were ceremonial laws about clean, unclean things, and about various kinds of sacrifices and other temple practices. And then there are moral laws. So sorry, I've already said all this. Well, we're gonna, okay. For Old Testament Israel, all three types of laws blended together. All right? Breaking a civil or ceremonial law was a moral problem, and conversely, breaking a moral law had a civil and often ceremonial consequence. But they only went hand in hand because Israel was in a unique, unique place historically, which I just talked about, separation, church, and state, their theocracy. All right, so these laws that, that, we, that we just talked about, if, if something would have happened, if someone would have fallen off someone's house and died or got injured, right, that was a moral thing, but it was also a civil thing. 
So it was very hard in this time. And so when we look at Scripture that way, when we look at Old Testament law and try to very clear black and white, this is how, this is what this law means, and this one's this way, and this one's this way, we're left with a, with a difficult way to try to apply it here, now, today. Um, because we would just say, well, we're, we're not in Israel, so we don't have the civil, we don't have the ceremonial, so we only have to obey the moral laws, which has kind of been a historical way of looking at that. And then in seminary, which I've brought this up, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, of, of crossing the principalizing bridge. What was the principle there? All right, don't harvest the corners of your field, okay? I don't, I'm not a farmer, but the principle there is be kind to those who don't have things, right? Be kind to the poor. Give to the poor. That's the principle. And so we can look at all these laws and say, what is the principle, which is really a good way to do it. However, a lot of times, especially in the book of Leviticus, the principle is, God is holy, therefore be holy. And it's not very specific, right? And so we're going to look at other ways in which uh, we can do that. And so this was something I learned in LDI uh, in Romans class and uh, how to interpret these Old Testament laws. And so um, this is from Steve and a guy named Norm. I forget his last name, but I'm, I'm going to do this as fast as I possibly can. Um, but... Romans classes, it was an all-week-long thing. You'd, you'd go, it was at 9 to 10 o'clock, is that right, Paul? Yeah, it was just for, for the whole week, all right? It was just like this block course, intense, just going through the first eight chapters of the book of Romans, all right? And so we spent a lot of time talking about this, but not the whole time, but this was a big deal. So instead of just these three, which we just talked about, civil and then cov uh, covenantal, we're going to add a few, all right? So this one's covenantal as a means to obtain and maintain the Abrahamic pur purpose of the land, blessings, and life. Okay, that the purpose of the law was to show this is a means to obtain and maintain Abrahamic presence. And then there's ceremonial, um, to foreshadow Christ with regard to the temple sacrifices. So everything in the ceremonial, when we look at it, the sacrifice and this sacrifice and do this, throw blood over here, take a branch of hyssop, sprinkle this person, all of that stuff points forward to Jesus. And it's wrapped up very beautifully in the book of Hebrews, but we're not going to read any of that tonight. And then to clarify, to clearly define sin, um, God goes to them and he says, hey, don't boil a goat in its mother's milk, right? You, you probably never thought about doing that, but I just told you not to, so you're not going to do it, all right? And so this is the same kind of thing, to clearly define what sin is. Consummation, to show the ways of God. This is one of the most beautiful things that we can see when we look at these Old Testament laws is God doesn't do any of this arbitrarily. He doesn't just fling something out there and hope it sticks. There's something about everything that he says that says this is who I am and because I am this way, then you need to live like that because you're my people and I made a covenant with you. The sixth way. Accumulation, uh, accumulation. Okay, that one is to increase, right? To add something to it, to increase sin, right? Is it adds to it, and then finally, uh, coach, right? To point us to Christ with regard to our need for a savior, right? It's, it's they're showing us this is how you live, this is how you walk, this is how you act like Jesus, and it points us to Christ and our need for a savior. Okay. I flew through that. I hope that makes sense. Um, and I'm going to come back to that at the end, right? I mean, there's going to be application with all of that stuff at the end, all right? Now, let's get into the text. And, and what I'm going to do this morning, um, which I, I really have been, ha been 
bouncing it back and forth all day today, thinking, okay, maybe we'll just get out really early and anybody who wants to stick around can stay and learn the laws. I'm not going to do that, okay? I just picked the ones that were really controversial, at least in my mind, okay? You might, have, you might read through it, or maybe you are reading through it, and you might go, yeah, that one makes sense, right? You know, don't have sex with an animal or you'll be killed. Okay, I get that, right? Um, and there's ones that just are, that are obvious, right? And then there's other ones, though, that, go, that, that raise this red flag of, what just happened? Wait, I couldn't have read, couldn't have read that right. All right, so those ones that stuck out, I want to go through and explain why, and, and a lot of words, okay? We've already done a lot of words, more words are coming, okay? Um, again, uh, Douglas Stewart says this, um, the covenant code begins with a concentration on the treatment of human beings rather than animals, plants, or other things, and specifically with rules regulating the treatment of those human beings who might be most easily or most often mistreated or exploited, that is, servants and slaves. And so the text here says this, if you buy a Hebrew servant, right, or a Hebrew slave, right, like right there, right off the bat, it's like, wait, God's cool with slavery? All right, we're going to get there. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he's to go free. But if he has a wife when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons and daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master, and only the man shall go free. But if the servant declares, I love my master, and my wife and my children and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges, and he shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an owl, and then he will be a servant for life. All right. I'm going to read four pretty long chunks here about slavery and the slave laws in ancient Israel. Because what you need to keep in mind is this is... Every single, at least American, when we think of slavery, thinks to the, the evil atrocities that happened to another people group that were forced and kidnapped and come over to this country and forced to, slave, forced to be slaves. All right, that's where we go. That's not what happens here. Okay, so let me just read uh, what Hebrew scholars say about this. The various Hebrew terms translated by terms such as servant, slave, maidservant occur more than a thousand times in the Old Testament. And it can be, and it's, and it's interchangeable. Um, the present passage reflects the broad uh, semantic range encompassed by these terms and concepts which they refer. And although the laws in Exodus 21, 1 through 11 address primarily circumstances of a six-year contract servants, right? No matter who it was, they would come and they would serve their, their master, their employer, as we're going to get to, for six years. And every seven years, because it was, it was a year of jubilee that we're not going to get to in, this, in, this, in Exodus. They were all to be set free. They were all to be able to return home. That every debt they owed, set free, done. All right? That's not, it's not American slavery. All right. Uh, they do not implicitly distinguish among categories of employees. Uh, the most common vocabulary word used for servant is ebed, which can mean worker, employee, servant, or slave. Anyone in these categories came under the protection of Yahweh's covenant law. And this, this, these books are riddled with, if you are a servant or an employee of somebody, this is how you are to be treated. Treated fairly, not oppressed. The laws in this section also do not differentiate between types of employers. The standard terms here used is balal, but can mean boss, employer, master, or owner. Similarly, the words translated buy or sell 
can refer to a financial transaction. So I love what he says. It's like, it's like a, a sport, right? Kirk Cousins is owned by the Minnesota Vikings. He's not actually owned by the Minnesota Vikings, right? But they can sell and they can trade him, right? Uh, much misunderstanding of Israelite law has arisen from failure to appreciate the uh, analogous distinction that prevailed in ancient Israel. When the law was properly followed, persons who were servants, slaves, workers, employees held their positions by reason of formal contract that related primarily to the job that they had signed up to perform to do. I'm going to keep going through the military. He talks about it would be like someone enlisting in the military. And there's people all over the world that still do this and did for thousands of years. They came from, they were poor income, whatever it may be, and they say, hey, I, I don't have a way to provide for my family. But you know what I can do? I can sign up for the military and they're going to give me food and money and housing and, and all these things, right? And so therefore, when the lieutenant says, go do such and such, right, he's responsible for this person, but it would be kind of like, like that. All right, whether one translate Ebed as servant, slave, employer, or worker, it is clear the biblical law allowed for no such practices in Israel. Indeed, the law reflects that is African slavery, what we think of. Indeed, the law reflects the fact that when obediently practiced by boss, employer, owner, and servant, slave, employer, worker alike, Israelite service could be so beneficial to a worker that he or she would choose to enlist for a lifetime with the same employer. All right, that's that whole idea of getting my ear pierced and staying with them. God, I love them. I, I enjoy this. I enjoy my whatever it may be, whatever the excuse may be, it can be a good thing. All right. If that's still not clear to you, we can talk about it later, but uh, that we're going we're to move on. Like, yeah, we got a lot more of these. All right, here we go. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as the male servants do. If she does not please the master who has selected him for himself, he must let her be redeemed, all right? be, be purchased back. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. All right, can't, can't sell someone into, into actual slavery. This is what, he, what, he, what, he, what God is saying here. If he selects her for his son to be married, uh, he must grant her the rights of a daughter, right? Just, hey, you were a servant, but now you are my daughter. All right, all my land, all my possessions are going to go into your family. If he marries another woman, wait, wait, he can be married two times? Okay, we're going to get there. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of food, clothing, marital rights. If he does not provide her with these things, she is to go free without any payment of money. All right. What? I'm going to read Douglas Stewart again here. These kinds of equalities are mentioned in typical paradigmatic fashion as standing for all the various ways a second wife had the right to be treated as an equal, equal to the first wife. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Talk about the equality between the first and second wife. Okay, I know like our brains, is, this is like, I don't, what are we talking about right now? All right, we're talking about multiple wives. We are. Okay, and this is what he's saying. The equality of this. We're going we're gonna to go back, talk about this again a little bit deeper here. All right, so equality with food, clothing, and sexual relations, the marital rights, which Paul reiterates in 1 Corinthians Thus, the covenant law tolerated second wives, whether servants or not, but only if they were treated equally in the family uh, the way the first wives were treated. A second wife could not be a second-class wife. Failure to provide equal treatment in every way to the second wife was sufficient grounds for the wife to be freed from both, uh, from both her marriage. Okay. When I go back here, this was actually a footnote in the commentary that I was reading, okay? So I'm just going to read this footnote. This toleration comes within the toleration of multiple wives, is what he's talking about. 
Toleration comes within the context of toleration of human weaknesses uh, in a considerable variety of areas. There's other areas we'd go, I don't, I'm confused on this. Jesus describes the Mosaic Covenant in these terms in Matthew 19.8. So Matthew 19.8, Jesus says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives in the law. I mean, that's not the way it was ever supposed to be. I mean, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. And in Genesis chapter 3, right, that he joined these two individuals together, Adam and Eve, and says, whatever God puts together, let no man tear asunder. He's saying this is what it was supposed to be like. But there were permissions that were granted because we're sinful human beings. So that comment, that, that footnote continues. As a covenant that included accommodations to sinfulness rather than a covenant that presumed only perfect behavior and motives. Without some means means of accommodation to human frailty in any divine covenant, there can only be hope for humans to find acceptance with God. This importance of the forgiveness of sins and the preaching of the new covenant. Okay. So what's, being, what's going on here is that the, they're saying that there's, 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 there's laws that are given here to accept sin, right? Which doesn't, in your, if, if we think about it too much, it doesn't make sense. But then we got to say, there's all these laws that are the, are there, the sacrificial laws, right? If you commit this crime, if you do this sin, kill this animal and your sins will be forgiven. So people, Deuteronomy 29, they says, this law is not too hard for you. You can obey all these laws or you can do this. How is that possible? Because I can even break a law and receive forgiveness from God. All right, and in the New Covenant, this is completely changed, right? The New Testament, very clear, one wife, that's how it works, right? That's, we're going to go back to the way it should have been under the New Covenant in Christ, okay? Again, I'm going to move on. We can talk to me about that. If people quarrel and one person hits another with a stone or with a fist, the victim does not die and is confined to bed. The one who struck the other blow will not be held liable if the other can get up and walk around outside with a staff. Again, this is like some really detailed, a lot of ifs, a lot of this happens, right? Okay, these are, these are detailed. However, the guilty party must pay the injured person for any loss of time and see the victim is completely healed. Anyone who beats their male or female slave with the rod must be punished. And if the slave dies as a direct result, but they are not to be punished if the slave recovers a day or two since the slave is their property. Right? Again, man, I'm reading through this. I'm just like, call in the left-hander core. Let's go. You're, this, you're up this week, man. I'm, I'm going to take a break on this one, right? Let you handle, handle this. But as I was reading all these, these commentaries, and again, this, the hard thing about Old Testament law is if you just read it uh, like I have been, you're going to go, I don't know, there's no possible way that just reading the text, you're going to go, oh, that's what this means. Right? You, you have to open up these commentaries and these books and people who, who understand these things, right? And so that's what I'm trying to do uh, because if I think, in my mind, if you just would have just decided to stay on task and read the chapters, you would have come away with questions. So I figured it's just easier to answer your questions now, okay? However, when we study this stuff, there's actually a lot of beauty in this. There's sanctity of life, right? And so this is, this is what um, uh, one, one commentary says. If the servant died, it was murder, all right? Servant dies, then the owner dies. If the servant just was lost just a day or two at work, however, the owner was not obligated to do what the previous law required. That is compensate the servant for his loss of time and work or medical costs because he is his money, all right? The NIV was slave is his property. 
There was, in other words, no point in asking the servant's boss to compensate himself for the loss of his own servant's labor. Right? That makes sense. If the servant had been too severely punished, however, so the servant took on more than a couple days to recover completely or was permanently injured, some combination of the terms in the prior law, the law in these verses would be used to make sure the employee, employer did not get off without penalty. All right, I'm going to move on. If people are fighting, two men, I'm assuming, are fighting and accidentally hit a pregnant woman, all right, and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and bruise for bruise. And that, that, that verse, I think, Everybody knows, right? Hey, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Right? I think that's one that we, that we throw around all the time. Right? So I want to explain the whole the woman thing, what's going on here with this baby. I'm confused what's happening. Right? But then talk about that law, which is called Italian law. Right? That, that you chop off my pinky accidentally, well, give me your hand because I'm chopping. This is really violent tonight. I apologize. All right, NIV rendering of, and she gives birth prematurely, which is what I just read, has not been accepted by most subsequent versions and commentaries. The most likely translation for the disputed portion of the law would seem to be, if men are in a fight and hurt a pregnant woman, but she is still able to have children and there is no harm, uh, this is the law that would require waiting until after a woman gave birth to see what sort of penalty should be imposed against those who engaged in the fight. Right? And what this tells me right here, this, this law that seems very obscure, what it tells me about Yahweh is that he cares for unborn babies. Right? He cares about them. He cares about life and he cares about women who are very vulnerable uh, in their pregnant state. Uh, I think I can say that. Uh, and, and as men, we are to protect, not harm. And, uh, and God says, no, there's going to be punishment here. Okay? So the husband could prosecute the case even if there was no harm to his wife or his child or children, since the, the mere risk of anxiety of facing possibility of injury to the unborn or the infertility of his wife would warrant it, right? That's, you read that law initially, and you're like, this doesn't make any sense. And then you read these, these guys who, who their whole life is devoted to studying the book of Exodus, and you go, oh, that's, that's beautiful. God cares. All right, an owner who hits a male or female slave in the eye and destroys it, what does he say here? This is the very next verse. He just got done saying eye for eye, tooth for tooth. An owner hits a slave in the eye. What is he supposed to do? The slave then should knock out his eye and then remain his slave? No. Let the slave go free to compensate for the eye. Right? There needs to be a payment on the owner, or the employee. And the owner who knocks out the tooth of a male or female slave must let that slave go free to compensate. I think I'd rather lose a tooth than an eye to be free, but, you know, whatever. But you gotta imagine, right? Imagine if you are an employee and if your, your, your owner gets aggressive with you. you. You have a defense in the law. Right? You come at me too much, guess what? You're gonna, be, you're gonna free me, right? That, that wasn't true of slavery that we think of. If a bull uh, gores a man or woman to death, but the bull is to be stoned to death and the meat is not to be eaten, but the owner of the bull will not be held responsible. All right, so you've got the owner of the bull. He's got his servants out walking this bull, and the bull turns around and tramples him to death. And he's saying, ah, they're just slaves. That's initially when I read it, it was like, wow, really? The, the, their lives, the lives don't matter? Well, 
Yeah, they do. Oh, uh, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna keep going. It, keep, it keeps going here, same thing. Pay the, pay the shekel of the slave that dies, um, or the, whatever, the family of the, of the slave that dies. So I love what he says here. Consider it a, a member of the military, which you talked about. If lieutenant orders a private to go into harm's way in the course of a military service and the private is killed, the lieutenant will not normally be put to death. So what he's saying here, it's the same, same thing here. Um, even if the lieutenant is found to have acted improperly, it is likely that he will be penalized short of the death penalty. The private's family may also sue uh, for compensatory financial damages, uh, but no one is to be put to death for the private's death. This does not mean that the private is considered less than fully human or mere property because the private was under the control of the military structure and was expected to do certain things commanded uh, that might involve risk, all right? Just like a servant going out and working a field, right? If they get run over by a tractor, uh, that's just how this works, right? They're not going to be sued for negligence or, well, they, they might be, uh, but then they need, they need pay. They're not going to be put to death as well, okay? So again, same thing. God, God cares about these people. All right, if a man seduce, I'm almost, I'm almost done. You guys are like, really, are we, how much longer are we doing this? Um, yeah, how much time we got? Not much. I'm gonna, if you got questions, just read through this. I could feel like I could do this all day, so I apologize. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna keep going through here. Um, there's no dowry system there, which is cool. Marriage was a sanct- very, very sacred thing, all right? So again, uh, that in order to, if, if, if a couple, yeah, I'm already talking about it, sorry, I studied this all week. If, if a couple uh, has premarital sex, then he's saying, the, the, the father of the woman says, nope, you're gonna pay the price that, it, that you would have paid to marry my daughter, but guess what, you're not, you're not marrying my daughter, right? Or they can get married, but he still pays the price. But the, but the husband always pays the bride price. It's not this dowry system. Um, okay, here's the do not uh, cook your young goat in your mother's milk. This one I actually do wanna explain. I'm gonna read this. The prohibition to not cook a young goat in its mother's milk occurs three times, all right? This is not just like one quick thing, like, oh, hey, by the way, I'm gonna give you some cooking instructions here. It's actually a big deal, all right? Canaanite fertility religion. So a a culture and nation that lived around them that was flourishing, fertility uh, religion uh, imitated fertility practices generally found throughout the ancient world. And these include marrying seeds when planting a field, all right, so that they would throw um, wheat and corn all in the same field, and that would help the fertility of, of the ground. And the theory that such a ritual would magically stimulate the powers of nature to procreate, producing more fertile crops. And since mother's milk, the milk of the goat dough, was what made the goat kids grow big and strong, the, right? The folk theory developed the dough's milk employed uh, in the process of a sacrifice in this case by roasting it on the altar or eating it, would somehow impart strength to the goat flock, making the whole flock more fertile. What is he saying here? Right, when God says this three times, he's saying, do not, do not worship me the same way that these other religions and pagans worship their gods. Right, there's gonna be human sacrifice and baby sacrifice, and he says, absolutely not. You do not do what they do. I'm telling you what to do. Very specifically, how to do that? Okay, how do we how do we do this? All right, we're gonna we're just gonna see. That was a lot of words. I just skipped a lot more words. We're skipping. Christian view of the Old Testament law. All right, what does this mean to us here now? Right, even the laws I just read. What do I do with this stuff? Are we supposed to obey this? Are we supposed to 
follow some of these things, even these moral laws? Am I held underneath this, this law that says, whatever, don't murder. And I do murder, even accidentally. Does that mean I'm out? I'm out of the covenant. I'm out of God's people. What does it mean for us? I'm going to look at Galatians. Galatians chapter 2 says this, for through the law I died to the law. This, this law, this, this shadow that was hanging, I died to it so that I might live for God. I came out from underneath of this law and skipping forward to verse 13 in chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. What? So wait, so are we under the law? Are we not under the law? We're under the law of Christ, we're under the law of grace, but is it still law? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. We just sang it last week, right? You have hushed the law's loud thunder, the thunder of God coming down, giving his people law. Christ has hushed it. Why? How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. And he redeemed us in order the blessing given to Abraham, this covenant and this law, might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. We looked at this last few weeks, looking at, at Exodus and looking at Isaiah, that, that Israelites would be a, a blessing to all people, to all nations and to the Gentiles, a light to the Gentiles, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, okay, I can't, I don't know, I can't buy a car uh, and, then, and then go back, right, and stop, don't, don't make my last three payments and go, oh, no, I changed, I changed it, right? Let's make an amendment on that. No, it doesn't work that way, right? You can't, can't amend anything. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to his seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ, what I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God, okay? This law does not set aside what Christ has done, doesn't set this aside by a, uh, by a previous, previously established by God and thus do away with the promise, right? Because there's promises made under these laws and these covenants. It's not saying the promises are done away with. If the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. In order to get this, I gotta obey the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise, through a singular promise, not by everybody else obeying the law. This is why Paul gets himself in trouble everywhere he goes, right? Why? Because he's saying, no, 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 hey, listen up to me. All you, all you Jews and Gentiles alike, listen, that, that law, that stuff that you're saying that you have to obey and do these things that, that Brian, you know, in 2018 is going to read for way too long, right? All these things, like you're no longer under that stuff anymore. Just believe in Jesus Christ. And they're saying, men of Israel, help us. This is the man, Paul. He's the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and that our law in this place, the temple, that we don't need to be in a temple to worship God. Continuing, what then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred one had come. Right? There was a, it was getting us ready for Jesus. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if the law had been given, 
that could impart life, the righteousness would certainly have come by the law, right? What Paul is saying right here is that not one single human being who's ever lived has ever been saved or redeemed by doing good works. That's what he's saying. Can't do it. If the law had been given, could impart life, then the righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner to sin. I am depraved. When I, in my mother's womb, I'm depraved. I'm a prisoner to sin. So that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. So when we look at that list of seven, okay, we're going all the way back to that. There are laws in the Old Testament and New Testament that I, I'm not under anymore. I've been set free from the law to be free. But there are some aspects of the law that I think we can still apply. Civil's done with. We're not a theocracy, okay? So, so we don't look at these laws. So, so for example, people will take things out of context, right, about how a, a, a man or woman should dress. There's laws in the Old Testament about tattoos. Don't get tattoos. Uh, well, that's, that's Old Testament stuff, man. I can get a tattoo if I want a tattoo. I don't have any tattoos. I mean, now I'm getting too old for it. I kind of, I've always wanted one, but now it's like, eh. Probably shouldn't. <laughs> okay. Ceremonial. Ceremonial. Sorry, there's a couple of typos in here. No good, right? We're done with this. No more ceremonial laws. Why? Right? We're no longer under this old covenant. We're no longer having to come to this altar for sacrifices. Jesus was that sacrifice. Covenantal. No longer under law. I don't need to obey this law in order to remain in the covenant. But for believers, there's a certain aspect of it, right? For believers, I'm in the covenant because Christ is over me. His blood covers me. And he's in the covenant because I'm in him. I'm good. Now, the clarity, understanding, right? Looking at Christ, being reading the law. Because again, we're not just talking Old Testament laws. A lot of New Testament laws. Read the Bible and we look at Matthew 5 and the, and, the, and the Sermon on the Mount and looking at just a lot of what Paul says to the church. There are things there that we get to learn about who God is. It adds to what God is teaching us, right? And it teaches us how to live like Christ. So I want to read this last quote. I promise it's the last one. It says this, law, this is talking about Old Testament law now. Law is a response to redemption. Talked about it at the beginning. It's a response to redemption, right? I'm not redeemed. I'm not under the law. Okay? I'm redeemed. I'm under the law. I've been saved. And so therefore, my salvation is a response to that redemption. The law is a response to redemption. Not a precondition for redemption. I don't obey the law here under this in order to get here. Can't work that way. A point made repeatedly in the previous chapters, which again, obviously we're not going to look at again. Law is a positive undertaking for Israel. Right? We've got to remember it's a theocracy and they read these laws and David says, man, I thirst for your law. I'm, I meditate on your law. It brings me, brings me life. It brings me joy. Like the, the stuff we just read. He's like, yes, feed me. Right? Why? Why can he say that? He says, law is a positive undertaking for Israel. It is not a burden, but liberation and freedom. It is God's pattern of vertical, those first four of the ten, and horizontal conduct for his people. 
Since the Israelites have been redeemed, it is now a path toward a fuller realization of God's universal plan of redemption, a plan that will only truly come in its own, uh, uh, into its own with the coming of Christ. And so every single thing, and that's why every single week we can look at a book like, the, like Exodus that's thousands and thousands of years old and say, oh, you know what this is teaching us? It's teaching us about Jesus. You know what all these laws here are doing? They're teaching us about Jesus and how he fulfilled it for me. And now here underneath Christ, I don't have to do. But you know what I do get to do? I get to do. And I get to obey these laws out of love for him, not obligation, because it can't keep me in. I am not under the law for obtaining and maintaining my status in God's favor. I hope that's clear. Once I'm in Christ, I'm in him, and I can do nothing, nothing to get out of that. And, and there are consequences every time I choose not to follow God's ways. There are consequences for our actions, right? I've used this phrase before. If I choose to sin, I choose to suffer. There are consequences of this. All right. Um, in, in conclusion, just got quick gospel application is this. Do you live in fear of the law? I did. I did for a really, really long time, right? Again, that's why Martin Luther is my guy. It's because he was so afraid of God. He spent hours and hours on his knees confessing his sins to God and hours and hours upon hours, like five to seven hours at a time in the confessional booth. He was so afraid of him because he thought my redemption depends on me obeying this law. It's not. So next question, do you live under grace and follow Jesus freely? Because I'm telling you, this life in Christ, and even though we have laws that we obey as a Christian, I do it because it's an amazing, satisfactory way to live. There's nothing better than Do you live under grace? But the problem is when we hear a sermon like this, and I think I say, I've said this a lot in the book of Exodus, is that we, again, have that tendency, legalism license, legalism license, right? Oh, man, I'm free, so there's no, I don't have to obey any of these laws, Right? So the whole, like, you know, don't have sex before marriage, that's just like, a, that's a law that, that I don't have to obey because I'm in Christ. Right? All this law is about, you know, like, giving to poor people and being nice to people. I don't have to do that stuff. No, man, I get to do this stuff. And I get to live under grace, and so I don't go back to the law thinking, oh, if, I'm, if I do all these things really well, then God will love me more, or, well, then forget it. I don't need to do it. No, I live under the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what's really cool is we're going to sing about it. And we're going to remember it through communion. And we're going to lift up our voices. We're actually going to sing, give me Christ or else I die. Right? Give me Christ because if I'm still under this law, then as another song we sing, right? I got, I got to work my fingers down to the bone and I can't. I'm free in Christ. Give me Christ or else I die. And so now we get to take these elements and we get to take the bread that represents the body of Christ, this broken body, his cursed body that was on the tree that was broken for me and broken for you and your sins and the juice that represents the blood of Christ that, that covers us in our sins before a holy, ineffable, unapproachable God that says, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased because you're with Jesus.
Uh, Gluten-free is over here. Will you bow your head with me and, and pray? Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for the law. It's difficult. It is. It's difficult. It, it took a, a long time to, to study and prep. And, and, and God, I pray that even if there's any questions that, that peaked up in someone's mind and just said, man, that doesn't quite make sense. God, I, I pray that even if they can't find answers or if I can't give them the answers or these commentaries can't give them the answers, that they would trust that you are a good and loving, holy God. That none of these laws were said or written down just arbitrarily, just so you could be in charge and show them who's boss, but you could demonstrate for them the love that you had for them, that you had this plan of redemption all the way from Genesis chapter 3. That sin entered the world, and you ushered in this plan of redemption, this seed of Eve that would ultimately come and be crushed by that serpent on the cross. But in that moment, he would undo Satan, that he would crush his head and obtain the victory because I have a victory in Jesus. So God, thank you for that. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your law. And it's in Christ's most precious name we pray. Amen.